following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. A little girl came home waving a paper. She's waving it back and forth. Mom, 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 I made the most unusual Christmas picture. My teacher said it was the most peculiar picture she's ever seen. Her mom grabbed the picture and looked at it, and yes, it was very, very unusual. And so she said, well, why do you have all these people flying on the back of an airplane? And she said, mom, it's the flight to Egypt. Don't you get it? Well, the mother was, you know, a little bit you know, cautious now because her daughter was disappointed that the meaning wasn't totally apparent. And then she said, well, who's this mean-looking man in the front? And she said, Mom, that's Pontius the pilot. Come on. Well, she said, oh, yeah, okay, and here you have Mary and Joseph and the baby. She volunteered, and then she studied the picture, and she worked up enough courage to ask, but who's this really fat man sitting behind Mary? And the little girl sighed and says, can't you tell that's round John Virgin, okay? Don't you get it? You know, we find that Christmas, would you agree, is somewhat familiar, right? Almost too familiar. Many of you in your homes, you have nativities all set up, and there's a little baby Jesus, and there's a Joseph and a Mary, and you might have a little shack, okay, where they're at, and laying in a manger, and you might have animals, and donkeys, and sheep, and you might have shepherds who are gathered there. You might even have the wise men, but the question is, is it accurate? Is it actually reflecting what that night really was. In our commercialism, we tend to miss a little bit of the accuracy of what God revealed about Christmas. So to help you this morning, we wanted to give you a Christmas quiz. It's there in your outline. Take it out, and we'll go through it together very briefly. Hopefully, some of you already took it, but this will just kind of bring you up to speed with really what the Bible reveals versus what tradition says, okay? So are you traditional or are you biblical? This is going to help a little bit. Ready? Question number one. Who were the men who came to give gifts to Jesus? Kings, wise men, rich guys, wise guys, magi. Which one? Letter E, magi. Okay, what is frankincense? A precious metal, a precious fabric, a precious perfume. An eastern monster story, frankincense, or none of the above. And the answer is letter C, a precious perfume. What is myrrh? An easily shaped metal, a spice, a drink, an aftershave lotion, of course, or none of the above. And the answer is letter B, a spice. How many wise men came to see Jesus? How many say one, two, three, six, ten, a small army are unknown? And the answer is what? Unknown. Very good. Very good. You guys are taking Bill O'Brien's test, I can tell. All right. There is only three gifts. Three gifts. We don't know how many wise men there were, but there were three gifts. The wise men found Jesus in a manger, stable, house, holiday inn, and a good mood. Which one? Letter what? C, a house. That's right. If you put your wise men in the manger scene, you are now unbiblical. Okay? They have to be on the mantle coming their way because they weren't there. They met Jesus in a house much later. How did Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem? Camel, donkey, walk, 
Volkswagen. Joseph walked, Mary rode a donkey, letter F, who knows? And the answer is F, who knows? Listen, friends, they've got movies about them. They've got children's books about it. There is absolutely no reference to how they came. Mary could have been in a cart. She could have walked. They were a little tougher back then. Okay, so there you go. But we have no reference to a donkey at all. You errant people, you. Okay, so number seven. Jesus was delivered in a stable, a manger, a cave, a barn, unknown. And that letter E is unknown. Uh, the wise men stopped in Jerusalem to inform Herod about Jesus, to find out where Jesus was, to ask about the star that they saw for gas, and obviously to buy presents for Jesus. Okay, so, and the answer is letter what? Number eight, letter B, to find out where Jesus was. Who told Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem? The angel, Mary's mother, Herod, Caesar Augustus, Alexander the Great. No one told them. The answer is letter D, Caesar Augustus gave a cent. Uh, a census request and command, and so therefore they had to go to their hometown, which was Bethlehem. A manger is a stable, a wooden hay storage bin, a feeding trough, a barn, a dumpy house, and the answer is letter C, a feeding trough. And an extra credit, how many angels spoke to the shepherds? One, three, a multitude, none of the above. And the answer is letter A, one spoke, a multitude sang. And number 12, how did the angels proclaim? And what did they proclaim? Joy to the world, the Lord has come, alleluia. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Glory to God in the highest, glory to the newborn king, or George Harrison's from the Beatles, my sweet Lord, okay? And the answer is letter D, glory to God in the highest. How well did you do? How many got 10 or above? Can I see your hands? Oh, this is the smart service. How many got less than 10? Can I see your hands? How many are not going to raise their hand because you're afraid that you raise your hand while I'm going to do something to you? Okay, there you go. Interesting enough, how well do you actually know the Christmas story? We're filled with tradition. We're filled with, you know, lights and songs and carols, etc. But the question is, after 2,000 years of retelling and romanticizing, most people see the manger scene as something that is a beautiful story that was eagerly anticipated, eagerly anticipated. Listen, we have more people in my day waiting in line for Jaws than we have people anticipating the coming of Christ. We have more people in, in, in this room waiting for Wonka, okay, than waiting for the coming of Christ. Interesting enough, uh, the, people were so busy the world was so consumed with its own affairs that it didn't even make room for Christ to be born. It's so true. Nothing has changed today. Many of your friends are sentimental about Christ. Maybe you go sing Christmas carols. Maybe you give gifts to your neighbors. Maybe you put up lights in your house and you've got that nativity out front. But very few people in our day actually pay attention to the person of Jesus Christ. Very few they don't make room for him. And all of us truly battle, do we not, with busyness, especially this time of year. I mean, some of you are feeling it. Even right now, today is going to be, <gasps> you're already starting to hyperventilate about what's going to happen today. And we may go to a church service like you have. Uh, we may like sing those Christmas carols. Uh, we may have lights that we go and tour the neighborhoods and see what's going on all around us and the beauty of that. But very few of us really focus on Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who became a man. What we don't get 
is that Christ was not just a baby who was born in order to bring and give us a symbol of peace. That's really not what it was about. This story is much more powerful and much more vital. It's a rescue mission. God incarnate knew that we could not save ourselves. We could not make ourselves right with God. And so therefore, what he did is that he took on human flesh and became the God-man to take the punishment that you deserve and I deserve for our sins that separate us from God, took all of God's wrath upon himself for our sin, a punishment that you deserve, that you didn't get for being a rebel, going our own way, doing our own thing, so that you could have peace with God now and not fall under his judgment, which is well-deserved on our part as a race of people going our way, defying the God who made us, and end up in hell forever. That's why he came. This is the first step in his redemption, in becoming a man, so that he could then take our place as a man, as a human being, and to bear the punishment. He had to be God in order to be able to take that punishment from God himself. That's just like the first century world. As most people think about these days, it's not to bow before Jesus Christ like a slave would bow before his master, like a like a creature that should rightly bow before his creator, that's who Christ is, or like a sinner who should actually bow before his Savior. We don't think about Christ that way. As most of us think about Christ, it's not to do that, but to do exactly what the first century world did. They were not looking for Christ. And our world's the same. They're not looking for Christ. Remember what happened when eternal God was born as a man. Look in your outline, if you would, or if you have your Bible, please look there at Luke chapter 2, verse 7. We're not just only looking at one verse today. We're going to just actually look at one phrase of this verse and draw out everything that's there that we would find in the New Testament. So take a look at this verse, verse 7, and it says, And she, Mary, gave birth to her first born son, virgin born, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. She laid him in a feeding trough because there was what? No room for them in the inn. That's the phrase we're going to focus on. No room for them in the inn. With Christ today, just like the first century, number one in your outline, there's no room for Christ with the leaders. No room for Christ with the leaders. I mean, think about it. There was no room for Christ in the palaces of the first century. Caesar Augustus, the one who actually controlled the entire Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus gave no thought at all to a Nazarene masonry or carpenter and his pregnant wife as they made their way to Bethlehem. He gave absolutely no thought to that. There was not even a blip on his radar. Herod who was the current ruler over that area, including Bethlehem, was only 12 miles away from where Christ was born. And yet, he not only gave no room to Christ, but he actually plotted to have the infant killed when his birth was made known to him by the wise men. That's incredible. All he wanted to do was destroy him. And yet, that's right, today is no different. Today is no different. We got senators and congressmen and presidents and you know, educational, educational leaders, judges, etc. But they've got no room for Christ either. Not at all. 
Oh, they acknowledge Christ. They go to events that sometimes honor Christ. Uh, They don't, though, follow Christ. They don't obey Christ. They don't submit to Him. And they don't treasure Him as their Lord and Master and Savior, their Creator. They're still in rebellion, even though they might say nice words about Him. In fact, Christ is the Prince of Peace, but leaders often delight in conflict so they can be the hero and solve the conflict. Uh, The Lord is truth, and the Lord Jesus is conviction. Presidents are all about politics and compromise. So there was no room for Christ even with the leaders in the first century, just like there's no room for Christ in the leaders of our day as well. But neither was there any room for Christ with the philosophers and educators and the most influential people of the first century as well as today. Today, many scientists, PhDs, college professors, media talking heads, they laugh when you say that Christ is the one who provides salvation and He's the only way to be saved. They laugh at you. When you read verses like John 14, 6 there in your outline, when it says Jesus is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life, and then He makes the statement, and no one will come to the Father, be right with Him, get to heaven, whatever, ever, unless it's through Him. Christ says that. Exclusivity, only through Christ. No other faith, no other religion on planet earth. And then statements that the Apostle Paul and others and Luke makes, like in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. No one else. But it was no different back then. The educated leaders of Israel did the same thing. The people of the greatest influence in the first century did the very same thing we see happening today. It's no different. All right? What did they do? Well, these educated leaders, they knew what the Old Testament prophets had predicted. They knew the Old Testament prophets had predicted 300 times about his first and second coming. They knew that, and they knew those well enough. And by the way, the Old Testament was completed 200 years before Christ was born. It's all put together. They knew what the Bible had to say about it, and they knew so much from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that they even told Herod exactly where Christ was going to be born because Micah 5.2 says that he will be born in Bethlehem. And they knew to tell him that. When the Magi later inquired as to where Christ was, Herod asked his brainy ones, the men of influence, where the Christ was to be born. And amazingly, they answered absolutely correctly, the city of Bethlehem. Now here's what's shocking. Not one of those brainy types, of those men of influence, not one of them actually went and visited or tried to find the Christ child in Nazareth. They didn't even bother. They knew intellectually the answer, but they did not bother to go find out or to see him, let alone worship him. They absolutely dissed the entire event. There was no room for Christ. They were busy with their, get this, religion. Really busy. And Christ was left out. Seldom Do we find even today submission to Christ in the seats of learning? Very few brainy, brawny, big shots turn to Christ alone to be saved. But the Bible warns us about that too, tells us that. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, your salvation, when you came to Christ. And what your background was, brethren. It says that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble. Very few of the world's professors, 
men of power, women of massive influence have room for Jesus Christ. They just don't. They're too proud. They don't see the need. I'm content with my life. Uh, I, I just want to achieve. It's all about me. So the gospel, and gospel means good news, and the good news is, is that every religion on the planet is telling you to work your way to heaven. The gospel says you can't. God did it for you. God did the work for you. You need to embrace his work. The good news of how Christ provided for people the only way to be made right in a relationship with God and to make you correct and, and heaven bound is foolish to them. It's absolutely foolish. Christ is God who died in your place for your sin, providing you the only way to get to heaven. And this salvation is so merciful, it's so gracious, it's so loving. You know what the Bible teaches? It teaches that God actually has to awaken your heart so you'll see the need and turn from your sin and repentance and put your life by faith in his hands to exchange all that you are for all that he is and say, I'm now living for him and what he's accomplished on my behalf. Yet all of this is rejected by the, the intellects of our day, for the most part. They say, you know, if man or a woman needs God, then just pick a religion. And you know what's so popular today? Just make up your own form of Christianity. That is so prevalent today. When people call themselves Christians, you've got to ask them, what do you mean by that? And if it isn't, then I am trusting completely in the Lord Jesus Christ, and He has caused me to be born again and transformed and changed, and now I follow Him, I want to please Him, and I can't wait to get to heaven with Him. If you don't hear that, you're hearing just some idea of Christianity. It's super popular, and it's very prevalent. You earn your own way. And they oppose that God alone provided salvation, revealed it in his word. People refuse to call Christ the first cause, the creator. And that's what he is. He is your creator. He made you, made the universe, made you. They say now, well, the world just created itself. You know how statistically crazy that is? It just boing, and there it was. Unbelievable. They, they refuse to say that sin is defiance against a holy, righteous God that everything he does is perfect and we have missed that mark massively so. What they say is, well, since, you know, everybody's got problems, everybody's got an issue, it's not that bad. Listen, you're condemnable because of your defiance and my defiance. And they refuse to see Christ as the only way to heaven because they'll say stuff like, there's no absolute truth. There's, Jesus is the truth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that, the truth for you. Oh, that's good for you. And all of a sudden, truth is relative. And truth is whatever you want it to be and whatever you feel. And that's not truth. And everybody's opinion is as good as anybody else's opinion. And there are many ways to God. And they say all this garbage, and it distorts the actual message of the gospel. They are resisting the simple message that God provided a way for you through His Son. And that's why Christ is not the focus anymore. Every step with the people with a voice today, entertainers, Media talking heads, politicians, they have sought to dismantle the true reason why Jesus came. Why we celebrate Christmas is the first step so that God could then accomplish our redemption. They've rejected that Christ came to rescue you from your sins that stands against you and God. There is a wall that you can't climb over that somebody else has to take care of, and that's what God did with Christ. He took care of the wall of sin. They reject that he came to offer you the only way to be forgiven, that you can live without guilt, 
that you can be cleansed of your sin, past, present, and future through Jesus Christ, that he came to provide the only way that you can be rightly restored to your creator now and forever. It's true. Like the politicians and learned men of our day, those back in the first century had no room for Christ either. No room. You say, but Chris, there were good families in Bethlehem. There were. I mean, undoubtedly, there must have been God-fearing, well-to-do families in Bethlehem, godly businessmen who supported the poor, poor like Joseph and Mary, who were dirt poor. And I don't read that those good families made room for Christ or a woman in labor. They didn't do it. They may have been very gracious to each other, but they had no more space for Jesus in the guest rooms of the godly businessman and the well-to-do families than there was in the palaces of kings or the classrooms of the educators. There wasn't. The Bible even tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, that Jesus Christ was rejected by who? Men. But choice and precious in the sight of God. That leads us to point number two. It wasn't just the kings and the PhDs. There was no room, number two, for Christ with everyday people. Everyday people. The everyday people had a hard time. Listen, it gets pretty serious here because if I could plug my projector into your brain right now and see what you're thinking, some of you would be going, I'm feeling pretty good at myself. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, kind of feeling like I got this surge of self-satisfaction and that's what's going on because you're thinking, well, there was no place with the wise and the noble and the, the mighty, but surely there was a place for Christ among the common people, such as ourselves. I mean, I would make a place for Jesus, would you? Would we? See that phrase that we're trying to pick apart in Christ's day when it says there's no room for him in the what? The inn. Inns were not the stopping places for the rich and the powerful. They stayed with their friends. Inns were the stopping places for the common folk. They had nowhere else to go. It was precisely an inn that had no place for Jesus. None. We sometimes try to convince ourselves that common people are more charitable, nor nice or sympathetic than the rich and the powerful. The everyday people are more responsive to the claims of religion or the needs of people. But that's not true. Rather, the Bible teaches that all of us have defied God and gone our own way. The Bible teaches very clearly in Isaiah 53, verse 6, there in your outline, take a look at it. It says, all of us like sheep have what? gone astray. Each of us has done our own thing, turned our own way. And, and the Lord, though, in His grace and mercy and love and compassion, caused the iniquity of us to fall on Christ, to be judged there. He did that because all of us went astray. Let's be fair. All right. I, I, I want to be honest and we want to be objective today, correct? So understand we understand why the common folk who filled that in had no room for Christ. Because, are you ready? They got there first. Come on, you've been that way, right? You got in line first. You know, you just want to move people out. Is anybody with me? You've done it. Would you admit it, please? I got here. Thank you so much. One honest man in our midst. I mean, we got there. We got there early. Why are we making room for those who come late? Well, she's pregnant. Well, there are other pregnant women. So Christ was crowded out. They, they didn't have any money either. So there's nothing we can do. But that could be a description truly of your life. 
It could be. If you're honest and you genuinely see reality and you're not wearing those rose-colored glasses, you'll admit that sometimes our hearts are so filled with everyday events that there's no room to think about Christ or to take any vital interest in Him or time for Him. This is true because our lives are filled with all kinds of things to do and many of those things that we do are very important things. That's true. Our interests, though, are just torn in a thousand different directions. Uh, We've got possessions and pleasures and people, and it gets so busy. Some of you are so busy today and tomorrow. It's like it's not even going to be any fun at all because you're just crammed with things to do. And all of a sudden, there's no room for the Savior. Except maybe in a small stable somewhere in our hearts. You know, we get, even though we have thousands of dollars, we get 20 bucks worth of Jesus. I wonder if Jesus is in the stable of your life or is he in the spread of your life? Is Christ truly regulated to a stall or is he in, or is he in the throne of your heart? Or is Christ centered on Sunday only when you can make it? Or is he central every day in everything? So many people in our community, in this area, this little hub of conservatism that we live in, have added Christ to their lifestyle with some sort of decision, but the reality is they have not, like those kings and leaders and everyday people, submitted to Christ. They've not come under Him as their master. The true Christ, listen, is never merely a resident in your life. If you know Jesus Christ, He is the president of your life. Now, it will be imperfect, yes, but He's never just the resident, He's the president. If He is in your life, He is the core. Just because you call yourself a Christian, you pray to prayer, you walk an aisle, you served a while, you got baptized, you go to a good church, does not mean you're a genuine Christian. And the Bible warns us repeatedly. Not just in one place, but take a look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. What's it say? He says, many will say to me, Lord, we did these incredible things in your name. Prophesy in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You who practice, this is key, lawlessness. You're not obeying God's word. You're not following what he has taught you to do. You're doing your own form of Christianity, not the one revealed in my book. If you're a Christian, write it down, you will do what Christ says. You won't do it perfectly, absolutely not, but you will do what he says. If you're a Christian, you will follow Jesus Christ. You won't do it perfectly at all, not even close, but you will follow Christ. You say, Chris, where do you get that from? I'm so glad you're challenging me. You're so defiant. What do you want to hear? What's he say in his word? John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they what? Follow me. Jesus says, My sheep will follow me. And until Christ reigns upon the throne of your heart, you cannot regard yourself as being any better than the people in Christ's day. And possibly, just possibly, you may have to evaluate, even though you call yourself a Christian, whether you truly are. Often it seems that even Christians have no room for Christ except some little stable off in their heart that occurs on Sunday until they really need His help. And then all of a sudden it's, it's Christ is everything, right? 
And you know why he does that? Why he gives you those trials? So that he will be everything. He brings us back. We kind of drift off. Anybody with me? And he brings us right back to where we need to be. So many who call themselves Christians don't have time for Christ as the central priority and purpose in their life. And, and we, we just have too much to do. We don't say no to good things so that we can actually have the best things and have Christ. So today, have you submitted to Jesus Christ? Or have you merely stuck the sticker of Christianity on the bumper of your car or in the back window? Is Jesus in the closet of your life or is he in the core of your life? Number three, do you have room? Do you have room? You say, Chris, yeah, I got room for Christ, but I'm unworthy. Join the club. Who of us before a holy, righteous, perfect God are not unworthy of Him? Come on. Anybody with me? This is what makes Christianity so incredible is that the worst of us can be born again. Can I hear an amen? And we can have a contest later as to who's the worst. And I want to go for it, okay, of being transformed. Understand this world is worthy, unworthy, massively of Christ who's our perfect creator and our holy king. But you know what? He came here and he did so in a way to, to reach down to us, to show us just how far he would go. He was born among animals. He was born in the most impoverished situation to show us that he would go even that far to save you. Some of you are saying, well, I'm so vile. The stable was vile. There's corruption all over. It stunk like a stable. All right, you see, but I'm afraid of him. Wait a minute, you're afraid of Jesus? A lot of people, afraid of becoming a Christian? Let me help you understand what Christ has done. Imagine being so poor and so in debt. And that's not a hard stretch for some of us. That you're afraid to answer your door because you're afraid there's going to be a summons. You won't even open your mail because you're afraid there's going to be that final, you're going to jail unless you pay this. We're going to come get you and greed, greedo and some other guy's going to show up at your door, you know, and, and beat you up or whatever. But knowing of your financial plight, you've got a friend who sacrifices to pay off your debts and then he wants to tell you what he's done. So you're in the black because of the efforts of your friend. But when he comes to your door, you won't let him in because you're still afraid. And he actually is the one who rescued you, removed your debt, and your reason to be afraid, and that's Christ. He removed your debt. The debt of your sin was canceled by his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and he has now come, come to provide for you. But your debt of sin will not be canceled Unless you trust him and exchange all that you are for all that he is with your life and not keep him out. There are many in this room, and I can look at you and I know who you are, who mocked Jesus Christ. Absolutely mocked him. Rejected him. Kept him at a distance. And kept him out of their lives. But one day because of God's incredible, amazing, irresistible grace and a compulsion of love, the Lord Jesus Christ made them open the door and admitted Him into the deep recesses of their inner being and they became born again. 
And they will tell you today that was the best decision they ever made in their life. That they would not trade that for anyone. They'll say to you, submitting to Christ was the greatest thing that has ever happened to me and nothing compares to it. Have you made room for the Savior? If you haven't, cry out to Him. Cry out to Him to be born again, to be born into your soul. Don't say, I hope I'll have room for Him. Make room for Him. You determine that. You say, God's sovereign, but you're responsible. Make room for Him. Plead with Him to change your heart so you might respond to Him in dependent faith and directional repentance. You'll turn from your sin. You'll put your hope in His work on the cross. You'll believe that He's the God-man and plead with Him to cause you to be born again. Born again. Because when you're born again, you have a new person. Listen, when you are born again, you look the same on the outside, but you are not the same. You're not. You have a new heart that wants to obey Him, a new heart that wants to follow Him with your entire life. It's not that your parents make you come to church anymore. It's not that you go through the routine of religion. It's that you now have a heart that wants Him to pursue Him. And you know that He's forgiven your sin, past, present, future. That He's infused your heart with love, has shed abroad in your heart, and He has changed you. The Bible even says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, How now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of what? Today. You don't need a formula. You don't need to walk forward. You don't need to pray after me. You are dealing with the God of the universe. He is omnipresent. He is ubiquitous. means he is fully present right now. You just deal with him. And you meet with that person in your heart of hearts. Submit to him as your creator. Cry out for forgiveness. And when it's real, he'll convert you. He will make you different. He will change you, transform you from the inside out and make you new inside. And when you submit to Jesus Christ, listen, you don't like a person clean up your act. Like somehow I'm going to be good enough that he'll accept me. That is not what the Bible teaches. You don't turn over a new leaf when you come to Christ. You get a new life. Not a new leaf, a new life internally. So Christ, if, I, if he is genuinely the way of salvation and I do respond to him, then what will happen to me? How will everybody else react to me if I become a Christian? Number four in your outline, the world will have no room for you. The world will have no room for you. If you make room for Jesus Christ, then from this day on, the world will have no room for you. Do you get that? It's true. We see this in Luke chapter 2 verse 7. Remember we're trying to shred one phrase apart and draw everything that's there. So what do you find? Look what it says. It says, because there was no room for him in the inn. It doesn't say that. It says, because there was no room for them. For them. That includes Mary and Joseph as well as the infant Jesus. They suffered the consequences of this as well. Who are Christ's mother, father, sister, and brothers today. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, look what it says. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Does the will of my Father. Everyone who follows the Word of God from a heart that wants to obey is the Lord's brother and sister. Everyone who obeys the Bible from a heart that wants to, they are truly God's family. 
Those who open their entire lives to Christ embrace all that he is for all that they are. They've died to themselves. They're saying, I am now going to live for Christ and accept and embrace what he's done on my behalf, that he died for my sin, he rose from the dead, and now I'm going to follow him from a heart that wants to are his true relatives. If you're following him, the world will have no more room for you than it did have for Jesus Christ. It won't. You must not think that if you follow Jesus Christ, you will be praised for doing so. You will not. You'll not be thanked for doing so. The angels in heaven, this is what's glorious, and God is actually the, the actually instigator of this kind of celebration. They will rejoice over every sinner who repents. Amen? No matter how insignificant you are in the world's eyes, they are gonna, there's going to be a party if you come to Christ. You won't see it, but it's going to be real, and one day you might get, you know, the review reels of it, you know, that, that actual celebration. But the world isn't going to rejoice. The world's going to scorn your decision. They're going to seek to put you down. If they can't succeed in getting you to renounce your decision or compromise your stand, it will turn its back on you and go its own way, shut you out, ignore you, marginalize your beliefs, and possibly even attack you outright, verbally and sometimes physically. If you come to Christ. That's what Jesus promised. The world will have no room for you. It is Christ who said in John chapter 15 verse 19. Look at it in your outline. If you belong to the world. It. The world would love you as its own. As it is you don't belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world what? Hates you. In fact the world doesn't speak bad of you. If it doesn't hate you because of Christ, the Lord warns you that something's wrong with you. It says in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Woe to you when men speak well of you! <laughs> John 16, 33, Though in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. To be Christ's follower is to be a person without a physical country. You're a displaced person. You've heard about displaced persons? That's you. You are, in the truest sense, aliens. You have a home you haven't been to now, Christian, and that home is where? Heaven. Heaven. That's where you belong. You're now a ferner on planet Earth. You don't belong here. No more. It's true. You follow Christ. It's like you're following him into the poverty of his early years in Nazareth, the loneliness of his itinerant ministry. Eventually you follow him to the cross all the time knowing that as his disciple, like the master, you will have no place to lay your head. This is not our home anymore when you come to Christ. But that's not the end of the story, praise the Lord. For each one of you, of God's true children, you'll have more than Bill Gates. In fact, you'll have more than the entire world has to offer. Uh, the magnitude of your eternal reward is so great, we can't even imagine it. It seems almost too pie in the sky to us. It seems like it's just almost unattainable. You'll have more power than the greatest leader, more wealth than the richest man. You'll have more wisdom than anyone with multiple degrees, and you'll be more noble than any king or leader on planet Earth. In fact, that leads us to number five, reminds us, God has prepared a room for his own. 
No room for the inn? Well, what's this room we're talking about? Even though the world will have no room for you, from the day you surrender to Christ and follow Him, God Himself will have a room for you, and it's going to be an incredible room, a room in a mansion, and Christ has gone to prepare the most glorious rooms for each of His followers. Take a look at what He says in John chapter 14, verses 1-3. through 3. Do not let your hearts be what? I don't know what you're going through, but don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me, Christ. In my Father's house are many what? Rooms. Rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a room for you, a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, a room for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Are you ready to serve Christ on that terms? Will you serve Christ when there is no room for you here below? And yet knowing that He who went to the cross has also gone to prepare a place, a room for you in heaven. So many of us in this room have followed Christ and have rejoiced that He forgave them. Come on, Christian, today, every single sin, past, present, and future, has fallen on Christ and been judged there every single one. Yeah, we still hate sin. Yeah, we still deal with it. But it's been taken care of. It, Jesus said, is what? Finished. No more. Every single one. Stop walking around with your head down under the weight of guilt. You don't need to. Yes, repent. Yes, deal with sin. Yes, confess. Yes, hate it. But remember that all of it's been taken care of. All of it. Every single one. And those who have rooms in heaven already taste of what God is going to provide for them in the future because He gave you a new heart that knows peace. At any moment, and in even the busiest moment, you can retreat in prayer and know peace in an instant. In an instant, you, you, you know purpose. You know why you're here. You have joy that no matter what trial you're going through cannot be taken from you. And you have a love that the world craves more than anything else. And you have it in droves shed abroad in your heart, Romans 5.5. 5. There are moments in my life that my joy is inexpressible. And I know you've had that too. Where you're just overwhelmed by His love and the fellowship of the saints and giving Him praise. And it's like your heart's going to burst through your chest. Is anybody with me on this? I'm not talking about an emotional moment. I'm talking about reality. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ that the world knows nothing about. Wow. So here's the question. Does Christ have room for you? Does he have room? Are you one of his chosen children? Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. And I want to share some things with you in reflection and want you to hear me, but don't want you to be distracted by anything. So just bow your head if you would, close your eyes and give this moment to Christ. Would you please? And for the sake of others in the room, if you admit that you're a sinner who is condemned by God for your disobedience to His law, His Word, the Bible, if you hate your sin 
and believe that God became a man in the person of Christ, born a baby, lived a perfect life, then gave himself on the cross for your sins. If you're willing to trust the work of Christ on the cross in your place, taking God's wrath for your sin and rescuing you from God's righteous judgment and hell forever, and if you believe that Christ paid the punishment for your sin, which is death, believing that you, you know, he had no sin of his own, Christ rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, provided a way for you to have completely new life. If he's been preparing you, then right now, in your heart of hearts, cry out to him to transform you right now. And if he does, I guarantee you, you will tell friends, you will tell relatives, it will not be a secret. There are no secret Christians. You will belong to the family of God and want to get interconnected to the people of God and a Bible teaching church, maybe this one or another. If it's genuine, you will follow Christ, not perfectly, but you'll want to know what his word has to say. You'll want to line your word up, your life up with his word and from a heart that wants to obey. And maybe you're even here and you're still wrestling and this is too quick for you. Then come back or go to a Bible teaching church where you came from and hear God's word and listen to God's spirit through his word and let him work in your heart and possibly draw you to himself. And here's the scary thought. The scary thought about submitting to Christ is every single person that is in this room, in this community, and on this planet, every single one will bow before Jesus Christ. You will either submit and bow to him now and know abundant life and eternal life forever, or you'll wait. And when you wait, you will face him in judgment. And you will acknowledge that he was the only salvation. But because of your rejection of him, he will reject you. And there will be eternal torment forever. Christ teaches there is no other belief that can save you. Your ideas about heaven, about Christ about salvation, about religion. All they are is another form of rebellion because it's only that which is God revealed in His Word that's true. You can't be religious enough, good enough, giving enough to earn your way to heaven. God had to do it for you. God had to provide it. And when you stand before Him, the only answer that will work as to why He should let you into heaven is that you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the God-man who died for your sin, rose from the dead, and it's given to you by grace, a gift that you didn't have to earn, but you responded because he worked in your heart so you would love him and that you would submit to him and trust him, and he will cause you to be born again. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would exalt yourself through our response to this message. And we pray that you would be pleased. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.